0: with AASLH to create the history check-in webinar. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. We've done three so far. We have three more scheduled with a fourth one, hopefully, coming this spring. The next one is October 23rd. with Susan Ware on women's suffrage. And today, we have Professor Carrie Lang from the University of Kentucky. Kansas. Yes, thank you, the other U.K. That That would have been a long drive. (laughs) That's KU, not U.K. I'm from Bloomington. I'm from Indiana. So U.K. there is the University of Kentucky. Um, And he is a professor in African and African-American studies there. And currently he is serving as the interim dean. And basically what he is going to do is his presentation is going to mimic the format that we do for the History Checking Webinar as a way of an introduction for everybody. And so it'll be 30 minutes of presentation and then 45
1: minutes of Q&A. Good morning. Can you hear me fine? Oh, this is good. All right. Uh, so um, um, Beth, thank you for the, for the introduction um, and, and for the invitation to be part of this conference of the American Association for State and Local History. Um, a couple of months ago, I didn't know this organization existed, so I feel like I've I've learned some things just in a short time that I've been engaged around this. Um, uh, I'm really excited to hear about the partnership between uh, this association and the Organization of American Historians. Is this uh, is this the Distinguished Lectureship Program that is the connection the the yes. partnership? Okay, all right. Uh, No, I was just—I was just seeing what the relationship was, um, and uh, I guess my point is that uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that happen. I know that um, the relationship will will yield some some great things for both organizations and for the profession. So, um, the title of my talk this morning is "Civil Rights Beyond the South: The Significance of Missouri and the Black Freedom Struggles of the 1960s," um, and uh, my remarks are going to build on uh, concepts that. I explored, and I'm going to do this awkward thing here, so, um, that I explored in uh, my my first book entitled Grassroots at the Gateway, Class Politics and Black Freedom Struggle in St. Louis, 1936-75. to My comments also come from uh, an article that I published uh, now about five years ago uh, in the Journal of Social History, and it was entitled Locating the Civil Rights Movement, and um, I consider uh, this work part of a broader um, revisionist scholarship, and I use revisionist in, in a positive way, a uh, scholarship that's been developing for some time. Um, and indeed, over the past few decades, historians have begun uh, revising the history of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, the direction of this new scholarship has been to, uh, to, to rewrite um, what has become, for many of us, an oversimplified narrative, uh, of the movement in which Rosa Parks sat down, Martin Luther King Jr. stood up. Um, Presidents John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson secured the passage of civil rights reforms. Um, racism was ended in the United States, and and you know the nation fulfilled the promises of racial equality and color blindness uh, by uh, you know establishing a national holiday and monument. Oh well, that didn't work. Um, There we go, right, the King uh, Monument, and uh, even electing um, Barack Obama as the nation's first black president. And the image, of course, uh, is evoking uh, a photograph of Rosa Parks. This is in the same bus. That bus is housed in Dearborn, Dearborn Michigan. Um, so scholars have revisited, um, and I'm part of this, this conversation, revisited several fundamental questions um, about the movement that we might categorize as what, who, when, where. Um, and so I, I want to sort of say something about um, the kinds of questions that scholars have been asking anew. Uh, this question is, what were the goals of the movement? Um, was it about access to public accommodations, um, the acquisition of a vote? Uh, which were legally won through the 1964 Civil Rights and 1965 Voting Rights Acts, Um, or were the movement's agendas more expansive? Um, And many of us are arguing that it was. So it was also about not just simply the vote, which was important, or public accommodations, which were important, but also fair and full employment, um, the right to collective bargaining, uh, and the creation of an egalitarian labor movement, Um, St. Louis becomes a place where we see that. I'll talk about a bit in a moment. Um, Equitable urban development policies that preserved and strengthened rather than uprooted and displaced neighborhoods and communities. Um, It was about campaigns against police brutality, open and affordable housing, access to quality health care and education, and and sort of the expansive nature of what the movement was about has, for a number of scholars, raised the question of you know, what language do we even use to describe the movement? Do we retain civil rights, for example, as our conceptual marker for identifying um, this period? Or should we, as historians like Claiborne Carson, have argued, adopt the term um, black freedom struggle, or black freedom movement, uh, which is more, uh, more capacious? Um, so this question of, of what the movement was about is one that has been under investigation in recent, in recent years. Um, who were the movement's leaders and participants? Uh, do we focus on the presidential administrations of Harry S. Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson? Um, how do we situate the charismatic leadership of individuals like Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X? Um, should our focus uh, as scholars of the movement be on ministers, trained lawyers, um, other members of the, the uh, so-called you know, respectable post-war black professional middle class um, as have figured in many narratives of the movement, or do we need to pay closer attention uh, to other actors, uh, most especially segments of the black working class, um, whether we're talking about sharecroppers, janitors, office clerks, taxicab drivers, laborers, domestics, uh, single mo- uh, mothers on public assistance, public housing, uh, tenants, so forth, Right, Everyday people who form the basis um, of the work of scholars like John Dittmer, uh, for example. So this is a question that people are asking. When did the movement um, occur? All right, this question of time period or periodization. Um, does the, the standard or what we might consider the classical 1954, um, 1965 time frame, which is bracketed by the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka Supreme Court ruling, um, on the one hand, in the passage of the Voting Rights Act, on the on the back end, does that still suffice? Or, um, like scholars such as scholars like Jacqueline Dowd Hall, Jean Theo Harris, Kamosey Woodard, uh, should historians' periodization uh, of of this of the civil rights movement uh, encompass historical moments both before and after this time frame? So there some individuals who say that we have to push uh, the beginning of the story further back. Um, in my case, the 1930s becomes a really critical moment um, in terms of understanding how you even get Brown um, in 54. Others arguing that, well, actually 1965 uh, is an endpoint in some respects, um, but there's a lot more that happens um, after that. Some people uh, arguing up to and including now. Uh, so everyone is not clear uh, necessarily on, on how, we, how, we, how we cut it, how we slice it, but the idea is that we have to talk differently about the time timeframes, um, and if we do expand um, our our schema, our our timeframes, our periodization, um, what are impl- are the implications for how we assess, interpret, and conceptualize the past? Right. Part of what we do as historians is that we have to kind of sort of have a beginning or ending somewhere. Um, and figure out that there's some period that we're studying, and for certain sets of social, economic, you know, political, cultural reasons, it constitutes a period, right? I'll give you an example, not to beat a dead horse on this, uh, but just bear with me for a second. If we think about the 60s, what is that? Um, You know, is the 60s simply everything that happens between 1960 and the end of 1969? Um, that's one way to look at it, but actually, if we think about um, the various cultural, political changes that characterize what we talk of as the 60s, there's some people that argue that actually that begins in 1955, right? And ends uh, in 1975, where you have um, the U.S. withdrawing from Vietnam, the Watergate crisis, the oil um, crisis that ends this sense that the U.S. will experience nothing but perpetual growth, Right? So, um, so, so these are the kinds of questions that are, that are um, on, the, on the table. Um, there's a really good book um, co-edited by John Dittmer. It's called uh, uh, Freedom Rights, um, New Perspectives on the Civil Rights Movement. Really great essay in that book by uh, a, a scholar, Stephen Lawson, um, that I would, I would recommend uh, for more of those conversations. Okay, um, most importantly for the purposes of my remarks here this morning, Um, is the question of where the movement occurred. Um, Should scholars of the Civil Rights Movement's attention be on the national or local scale, um, North or South? And for the purposes of, I'm gonna put that in in, in quotes. Um, Are the North and South appreciably different? Uh, And if so, how? Um, More generally, how should historians conceptualize the importance of place in our narratives of the movement? Um, what are the lines of demarcation as well as continuity among the regions of the United States with regard to the conditions that African Americans faced um, and the constraints and opportunities that they encountered that either facilitated or inhibited their resistance and shaped the forms of black freedom activism? And I want to bore down on that. Um, for scholars like Matthew Lassiter, Joseph Crespino, maintaining a this kind of strict uh, Uh, line of separation between the North and the South, in the study of the Civil Rights Movement results in a narrative that depicts black struggles in the South as heroic and righteous in the face of bad white segregationists, you follow, um, between 1954 and 1965, and black struggles in the North as a violent um, and pathological betrayal of the movement that turned good white liberal supporters against in the late 1960s. So there are a lot of stakes for even dealing with this issue of how do we understand the importance of region. Um, What I want to argue is that this perspective is is not the only point of entry to a discussion um, about the significance of place in the civil rights movement. Um, I want to argue that it's possible to perceive important historical differences between North and South. Um, in a manner that doesn't just reinforce uh, this simplistic regional binary in the study of black social movements in the United States, that does not reduce racism's existence only to the South, that does not downplay the presence of institutionalized racism north of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, And just to to put a finer point on it, um, it, you know, just to to make it even even clearer, um, that there are some people who argue that to talk about the Civil Rights Movement as being in the South is to ignore um, struggles um, and, and, and forms of racial control that happened in the North. right? My argument is that um, I think there's a way to talk about the significance of place without falling into this trap of presuming um, that the North is good and the, sad, and, and the South is bad, right? but that there are distinctions between the two. I'm arguing they are not the same, right? Historically, have not been the same, um, but but there's a more nuanced way to understand the, uh, that, that relationship. Um, I believe that is that we can approach racism as a national phenomenon and pursue the work of recovering the presence of black freedom struggles outside the South, while at the same time approaching North and South as signifiers of important regional differences in the black experience. Um, the movement was national, but it confronted. I'm arguing regional and local circumstances that were very particular. Um, so the task, in part, becomes establishing, expanding, and refining typologies of place, right? Which in turn might yield finer-grained assessments of region and black freedom stu- uh, struggles. And so I hope that you know to give you, um, to you know to to give you just to to engage you in conversations as folks, many of you who are doing local and state history, to further. Uh, reinforce why it matters, why we need these local and state narratives about the movement and how they help inform how we talk about it nationally. Okay, so from the the standpoint of conceptualizing the importance of place, um, St. Louis, Missouri, and cities like it, Kansas City as well, matter in rethinking narratives of black freedom struggle. We take seriously place We we yield more nuanced, sophisticated narratives about the broader phenomenon. More specifically, St. Louis offers an example of what I call, and others, the Border South, um, which represents a a transitional region, um, one that illustrates both the instability and the concreteness of designations such as South and North in the movement's history. Um, And you know when I. When I, when I mentioned the term the border south, um, clumsy uh, map there, um, you know, the states of the border south, and I'm talking here Missouri, uh, Kentucky, uh, Maryland, Tennessee, West Virginia, embodied um, the nation's racial politics in miniature, right, allowing us to see patterns of black racial subordination and resistance as a whole. Let me step back and, and sort, of, sort of put a finer point on this. That we don't have a lot of histories about racism and resistance in these areas. And I'm saying that um, the importance of, of having those is not just simply because we want to know what happened in Missouri, though there's an importance to that, but that if we understand what happened in Missouris and places like it, it actually can change how we talk about these things at the broader scale. All right. Um, so I'd like to, to elaborate on why the region of the border south matters to studying the movement. And what I'm going to do um, is actually speak conceptually. Right? So I'm not going to give you necessarily a narrative as much as I'm going to talk through a framework um, for how you and your work um, approach those local and state narratives. And so here it goes. Um, I, I uh, uh, um, you can't say this in Kansas, but as an undergraduate, I went to the University of Missouri. Um, well, OK. This would not be the response in Lawrence, uh, Kansas. You, you know. um, so that, I'm, I'm very careful about how I reveal that. And uh, lived for some time in St. Louis. And it was a, I found it a really interesting place. And if you ask people, which I did, you know, how would you locate St. Louis? Is St. Louis where is St. Louis? The the answers would always diverge. There would be some people who say it was the Midwest, and some people would say, well, you know, Missouri is a sta- slave state. We're in the South, um, and it was interesting. You would you would get you would get very different kinds of responses, which is very different than you know I'm a Chicago kid, where you know you didn't get those conflicting narratives. And so even at that point, before I even got into the research that I ended up doing and building my career around. It was always this kind of tricky thing of talking about well, what exactly is you know is Missouri and places like it. So you know even though it's located geographically, we might say in the Midwest, St. Louis did typify the political, social, and cultural patterns of the border st- uh, states states um, encompassing again Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware, Maryland, West Virginia, Tennessee uh, as an outlier. In one sense, what made these territories distinct was that they were Slave-holding states, um, uh, where there was no plantation system that had grown around a single agricultural product cotton, for example, um, where black populations were relatively small, um, as opposed to a place like Alabama or, or uh, Mississippi, um, where slaveholding interest had not dominated state economics or legislative um, politics. There was no black belt agrarian elite. So Missouri was a slave state, but slavery existed on a very different scale in Missouri than it did, for example, in Alabama or, or Mississippi. The numbers of black people were smaller. It's, its presence, its significance in the politics of the state were different. But it was a slaveholding state. Um, so there's that. Uh, Missouri did not succeed from the U.S. Or in the case of uh, Tennessee, was brought quickly back into the U.S. Thank you. After secession, um, in the context of the of the of uh, the sectional um, crisis, the Civil War, um, but stemming from this history, these territories, and I think because of, 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 of these qualities, these territories also developed and reflected what I would argue was an in-between character. Um, and I'm not the only one who's made this point. As scholars from E. Franklin Frazier um, uh, to George C. Wright and or Scotchness, Peter Levy, Tracy Keymeyer have maintained The border states were an uncertain mixture of North and South, condensing in one place the regionally diverse experiences of African-Americans, and often prefiguring forecasting shifts in the rest of the nation. What do I mean by that? Um, We can credibly argue that the succession crisis in the United United States that led to the Civil War began, in many ways, with the, uh, the entry of the state of Missouri, the Missouri Compromise, right? And all of that, that set um, um, into, into motion. So uh, Missouri's entry um, as a state in the 1820s sparked the first major national debate about slavery. Um, if we think about, um, and uh, oh my goodness, in Lawrence, right? Um, the border wars, right? So if you think about the whole Mizzou KU thing, I mean, that goes deeper than, I think, you know, which is why it's been so you know, it's, it's, it's so, uh, it's so rabid. Um, that, that conflict um, at the Missouri-Kansas border, in many ways, was the beginning of the Civil War. If we think about the Dred Scott decision, um, signal the onset of the Civil War, these are things that all right were kind of uh, incubated in this state in this region. Um, if we think, for example, about uh, the shift from reconstruction to its demise, um, housing segregation, uh, ordinances and restrictive covenants, Missouri becomes a really important place to understand how these things developed and then went national. Even in some of the materials um, for this conference, you may have seen, and many of you already know about this individual, J.C. Nichols, an um, important developer in his region, set, uh, set certain kinds of, of templates that helped to structure racial segregation in housing nationally, right? Okay, Um, uh, White voters, and and here I'm sort of broadening the conversation beyond Missouri to talk about how it's representative of a region. Um, White voters in Baltimore, Maryland, Louisville, Kentucky, St. Louis pioneered the use of popular referenda to implement racial segregation. It was overruled by the Supreme Court, right? Um, in housing, St. Louisans instituted, passed the nation's first ordinance mandating racially segregated neighborhoods. Again, the Supreme Court outlawed this, but these same cities, in the aftermath of that, then initiated restrictive housing covenants. Right. So you have to understand Missouri, Baltimore, Maryland, um, as part of how we have nationally. Right. It was an incubator for racially restrictive. Um, housing policies nationally um, it was a region the border south according to the black sociologist Charles S Johnson where the nation's conflicting racial views and policies met and clashed to quote uh, a scholar George C Wright who I mentioned a moment ago and I quote for a full understanding of how white America dealt with its quote-unquote Negro problems it is extremely important to discuss the circumstances of blacks and border states end quote um, historically, St. Louis had been a midpoint between the centers of Eastern capital and the West, thus its nickname, the Gateway City. Right? Um, that, thats a symbol of the, you know, the, sort of the movement West. Um, but St. Louis, located along the Mississippi River, uh, historically was also a transition point um, between the North and the South. Uh, so Jim Crow-style racial apartheid existed, but it, w- it was pervasive. But it was uneven. Um, so public libraries and conveyances did not observe segregation. But swimming pools, ballparks, theaters, hotels, churches, restaurants, and hospitals did. Uh, Missouri's constitution enforced segregated public schooling and prohibited um, racial, uh, interracial marriage. Um, <clears throat> and um, um, uh, West Virginia, Maryland, Tennessee, Missouri, Uh, paid full tuition for black people to attend professional schools in other states to avoid equalizing um, in-state graduate education. Um, And this is in part why the NAACP, in its long march to undermine um, segregation um, in in schools, the border states were really important. So there are a number of key uh, key Supreme Court rulings, Gaines case 1938, coming out of this region in part because of that, uh, that situation. Yet, unlike many urban centers of the Midwest, <clears throat> no single area of black settlement existed in St. Louis until after the Second World War. Um, black people lived in different pockets around the city. Um, there was no single ghetto in St. Louis, unlike Chicago, though that did develop over time. Likewise, while black southerners were stripped of the vote in other forming slave-holding states, this is important, black Missourians remained part of the voting public throughout the period of segregation. There was no campaign um, to disenfranchise black people legally. In part because um, if you take a place like Mississippi, if black people were part of the voting public, there were counties where they would have the deciding, they could make the decision. And this is in part why you see that there's such violence. It's not that there's something in the water in Mississippi that people are drinking, right? There's a demographic question here um, that you didn't see uh, in Missouri and St. Louis. In fact, the black presence in the border states preserved the Republican Party as a viable political alternative, right, Um, to Democratic Party dominance that we saw further south. And the state Democratic Party, furthermore, was built or rather, split between um, something that you would have seen in a place like Chicago or New York—a multi-ethnic right wing in the cities and a white rural wing uh, that reflected the Democratic Party factionalism more nationally. You know what I'm talking about here. Like the Democratic Party, for a good part of the 20th century, was a this kind of tenuous coalition between um, between white right. Uh, segregationist southerners and their opposites right you know uh, irish catholic immigrants in the cities they all existed um, uh, you know racial reformers african-americans women existed uneasily in this one this one party Um, and so you see that dynamic in miniature in uh, missouri and this split between the democratic party as it looked in the urban spaces, Kansas City, St. Louis, and how it looked, for example, in the southeast Boot Hill, right? Southeast Missouri in the Boot Hill. OK. Peculiar to other border state communities, and I'm thinking here, for example, of Memphis, black St. Louisans also belong to the type of patronage, political patronage networks, typical of Midwestern big city politics, and despite their small numbers, enjoyed an uncommon degree of formal influence in public affairs. What am I saying? I'm saying you have segregation, but you also have a small black population, and you see this in Memphis as well, who are able to exercise some influence in electoral politics. Very different than in Montgomery. Very different, right? Than um, than a uh, um, uh, uh, Mississippi or what have you, where they were essentially shut out out of out of the vote. Um, Thus, while they had long accepted segregated schools and hospitals as a preferable alternative to outright exclusion, black St. Louisans have been able, this is really important, have been able to stake claims on public educational and health care um, services. Um, so you have, for example, um, Charles Sumner High School, first African-American high school west of the Mississippi. Founded in 1875, one of the finest black educational institutions in the nation. Um, Another one, uh, Homer G. Phillips Hospital. Really important um, care and medical training facility in the black community. What am I saying? And this was work that's been done by people like um, uh, Priscilla Dowden White. She's got a really good book you should read called Groping Toward Democracy. So she's saying that black people exist in the context of Jim Crow segregation, but they were able, within that, because they had a certain amount of leverage in electoral politics, not enough to end segregation immediately, but enough to leverage out of segregation some really fine services. Right. So she makes the argument that in, in a place like St. Louis, uh, African-Americans were, were able to get about as much as anyone could from segregated racial apartheid um, circumstances. And she talks about uh, what she calls racial pragmatism and clientage, um, that African-American elites were able to manipulate public culture uh, for certain uh, essential services. Um, Given the city's fragmented, weak mayor system of government, I'll come back to that point in a little bit, it really matters, because I'm gonna end by saying something about Ferguson, um, and, and, and you have to understand it in the context of this longer history of how that city is structured politically. Um, within this weak mayor system of government, <clears throat> African Americans had been able to leverage minor appointments and municipal jobs from white uh, officials in exchange for votes, and by the middle of the 20th century held office as ward, aldermen, and committeemen. Um, so, you have individuals who emerged um, like Jordan Chambers. He's at, at the bottom, of the second from, uh, from my left here, um, who was a Democratic, um, my right, I'm sorry, um, committeeman from the 19th Ward, known as the Negro Mayor of St. Louis. Um, dominated black St. Louis politics from the 1930s um, up until the early 1960s when he died. Um, very different than in a Chicago, where you had, right, the mayor was the boss and everything revolved. In St. Louis, things were a little bit looser. Black people were part of the voting public, were able to create certain kinds of spaces for themselves in that uh, uh, political culture. Because of these clientage relationships, white civic leaders in St. Louis historically had embraced a politics of interracial civility, right, through which they managed race relations and maintain black subordination under the guise of cooperation, goodwill, and public volunteerism among black and white professionals um, and, and, and elites. This is in part uh, to help attract northern investment, which was happening in the 20th century. The point that I'm making here is that uh, St. Louis was a racist city. It was segregated, but, it was, but that was managed and exercised in very different kinds of ways. The first option was not violence. Right? So you're not going to see images of people being right, shot with water cannons, at least not in the 1950s and 60s. Right, um, Racism, race relations were managed very differently because the landscape was very different than what you would have seen in other former slaveholding states further the South. Um, as it regards black freedom struggles, um, as the historian Jack Bloom argues, um, quote, the first victories were gained in the cities of the Upper South which were not historically dominated um, by the agrarian elite. So what I'm saying is that just as the border states had been bellwethers, for example, um, in the onset of the the crisis around slavery, um, a bellwether uh, in the retreat from Reconstruction and the transition to Jim Crow, Missouri and other border states, get this contradiction, were also the first former slave states to begin dismantling legal racial apartheid, All right? So they were the first in, right? They were a bellwether for where the nation was moving in that direction, but they were also the first out, Alright, So if you think about the Gaines ruling, 1938, um, higher education, um, <clears throat> the first steps toward desegregation of education in the former slave states, the desegregation of St. Louis University in the 1940s, Shelley versus Kramer, important Supreme Court ruling, Um, in terms of the enforceability of of restrictive housing covenants. Jones v. Mayer, um, US versus Blackjack, important fair housing cases that originated in St. Louis. Green versus McDonnell Douglas, an important landmark Supreme Court decision around employment discrimination. Um, Events, for example, in a city like Cambridge, Maryland, another border state, uh, prompted the greater involvement by the Kennedy administration in the affairs of a single community. This exceeded even Birmingham, other sort of southern states that had received more attention. Um, so uh, just to, if, if I can, and I know I want to be mindful of time here, and I'll wrap up here pretty soon because I want to hear from you all and not just just talk at you. But even if we go back to, to the slave, the, the, you know, even the Civil War, um, you don't have to see the film Lincoln if you've read about this period, Abraham Lincoln was, the whole time was frightened about what the border states were going to do. What role they were going to play in that because he knew that that would tip the war in one direction or, 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 or the other. Um, and again, the point that I was making is that the border states were the, were the first that were edging out of or transitioning from legal uh, segregation that had been created at the end of the 19th century. So that by the 1950s, African Americans in cities like Louisville, St. Louis, had gained access to numerous public accommodations, including libraries, parks, and schools, had black representation on the city's board of aldermen. Similarly, right, black St. Louisans had resolved, by the early 1960s, many issues around which black freedom activists in the South would fight for several more years. Not that the issues had been resolved, but they were fighting a whole other set of issues. So it didn't become, the issue wasn't about whether black people could vote without being brutalized. The issue was, how can black people exercise the vote more meaningfully, right, as an example. Um, Black freedom struggles, the civil rights movement in places like St. Louis, were complicated by two other key dynamics, however. Um, And I should have shown you this slide of Lloyd Gaines, I'm going to skip a comment that I wanted to make about Phyllis Schlafly. Um, well, what the hell, I'll say it, right? So um, if we think on the other side of the political spectrum, and this is probably uh, pertinent uh, today, the border states also were an incubator for what we've come to know as the new right, OK? Um, signaled an electoral shift of, of the, um, the Democratic solid south to the Republican fold. So if we think about Spiro T. Agnew out of Maryland, um, Vice President of the United States, Pat Buchanan, an important role in the uh, presidency of Richard Nixon, Phyllis Schlafly, an important grassroots conservative activist. Um, the border states are really important for, um, for, for those individuals as well, in terms of where many of them are coming from. Black freedom struggles in, in, in places like St. Louis were complicated by other factors, as I mentioned, other dynamics. The first was the presence of black political moderates who were connected to local white corporate leaders via civic committees and other informal, informal networks, these client relationships that I mentioned a moment ago, and opposed militancy in favor of continued reliance on racial pragmatism and negotiation. The second dynamic was black St. Louisans' role in competitive electoral politics at the local and state levels, which I mentioned before as well. Hence, the leadership of neighborhood Democratic Ward organizations often overlapped with the leadership of social movement initiatives. So you would have people who were activists, but who were also ensconced in these networks of electoral politics. William Clay, really important uh, example of this. So what would happen within the movement is that disputes in one sphere, in electoral politics, which shape dynamics in the more protest politics that will occur. And the differences between movement moderates, militants, this was influenced by the fact that many individuals often belong to rival ward organizations and factions. Really interesting kind of the dynamic, and maybe that's a little bit um, too much into the weeds, um, but Clay is a really important example of how this worked. On certain issues, paradoxically, black elected officials And Democratic ward activists even found common cause with white Democratic ward bosses who opposed the extension of Negro rights, but who, similar to many black St. Louisans, opposed efforts by white corporate leaders to impose citywide or regional planning and centralized authority in the mayor's office. Again, I should start wrapping up. I'm probably going a little bit too more in in the weeds. But as a scholar studying this period and studying these dynamics, very, very fascinating stuff. I'm happy to talk about that more if you have questions. Um, and so I'll, I'll wrap up by saying that uh, what you saw in St. Louis and places like it was that you had, to make the point clearer, you had methods drawn from both southern and northern theaters of struggle in one place. So you had black voting by African-Americans. You had ward-level electoral politics. But then you also had um, legal action insurgent protest politics, as well as black accommodation to white racial paternalism. What am I saying? I'm saying that all of the different kinds of means uh, that black people were employing to fight for freedom, for full citizenship, you could see in one place, all right? in the Baltimore in the St. Louis. And so to conclude, I said that before, but I mean it this time. St. Louis illustrates a geographic zone wedged between the Midwest and the South. Um, Its defining characteristics included slavery, but without the plantation-based agriculture that developed in the Black Belt. As a result, the border South historically housed small African-American populations. In the absence of military occupation during the Civil War, as a result of the border South not joining the Confederacy, so they weren't under military rule, the border South pioneered the widespread retreat of former slave states from black citizenship. Yet, given the relatively small black presence, the border south witnessed no full-scale black disenfranchisement, which preserved the Republican Party as a viable political alternative to the Democratic Party, which did not exist further south. St. Louis's multi-ethnic white population also contributed to the Democrats split between his homogeneously white rural and more diverse white ethnic urban wings, which embodied in miniature the Democratic Party nationally. Right. St. Louis's existence and that of similar border-south cities simultaneously, I argue, disrupt easy assumptions of a north-south binary in African-American history, while at the same time revealing the importance of regional distinctions. African-American journalist, an activist named uh, Nathan B. Young from St. Louis, makes a comment, uh, you know, probably biased, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. And he makes the point, if one American city had to be chosen for a complete study of the Civil Rights Movement, that city would properly be St. Louis. That's a bold claim. Um, I, I'm not quite going there, um, but I would argue that, that cities like St. Louis certainly give us a complete picture um, uh, internally. Um, because black freedom struggles and border cities contain many parts of the stories of other regions, according to scholars like Tracy Keymeyer, and I quote her here, It provides new ways of looking at the movement as a whole. But exactly what meaning should we draw from narratives of black protests in the border South? That's the question I pose. To the extent that we interpret interpret borders as spaces, places where differences blur, we can be drawn to the conclusion that distinctions between North and South are not that great. Yet a border, among other things, marks a boundary between entities Uh, which uh, at least suggests the existence of separate entities, identities. Even as it may shade differences, a border also allows comparisons and contrasts. Historians look for things that are the same, the things that are different. We compare as well as contrast. And from this standpoint, the designation of the border south disrupts a simple north-south binary, certainly in African-American history. At the same time, it offers the space, literally, to make sense of the ways in which black historical experiences on the terrain of the South diverge from those in the North in particular ways. More broadly, regional typologies hold the power to illuminate, rather than simply obscure, local battles for black freedom. And I promise I would say something about uh, Ferguson. Um, And I want to make the point um, that the kinds of issues uh, that Ferguson represented. And why that was such a national flashpoint, I'm arguing, and you know, maybe tenuously, um, that it's not a surprise right, that that area was ground zero for the conversation about um, certainly the migration of racialized poverty from the central cities to the inner suburbs. Um, and we have to understand Ferguson, in part, as part of an outcome of a long history of residential segregation in that region um, uh, and you know, we see it in places like, uh, for example, Pruitt Igo. I can say more about that, I won't in the interest of time. Um, but that was a major public housing uh, project complex that became um, a symbol for the failures of public housing policy in a nation. Whether that was deserved or not is a different conversation altogether. But this became a point of national focus and attention. Um, we can't understand Ferguson also outside of the context of the extreme level of political fragmentation in St. Louis, in that area. The boundaries of St. Louis were locked in 1876, and in that time, since then, you have literally almost 100 municipalities that have grown up around it. Right? That fragmentation, Ferguson is part of it. All these different communities competing for resources and for growth, and this is in part how you have the police using traffic stops to generate revenue for, this, for, these, for the various municipalities, for the city. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end there, and I apologize if I crash to a conclusion a little bit, but my point is that um, the border south has much to tell us about the civil rights movement, and I'm saying in a similar way, um, if we study the border south regions, we can understand uh, more uh, how they serve as bellwethers uh, for certain conversations that we're having even today. And so that's a little longer than what I intended. But I think we still have like 30 minutes. I can hang around for a little longer if you want beyond that, or maybe you all are ready to leave. Um, but in any case, I'm going to stop. And I'll, I'm happy to take your, your questions and comments. Um, if you can project, that would be great. And don't think that I'm odd, uh, because I, I believe that this is being filmed. I don't see anyone filming. but Anyway, it's, it's being filmed, so I was told. And so they need to hear the questions. So I, I don't think me weird when I repeat. Um, you know, repeat the question or comment that you made. Is anyone filming? Is that actually happening? It's audio. it's audio. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Gotta understand what you're doing. So all right, yeah, please. Thank you. yeah yeah so oh. will that be made available as well? like some of the source information. I'm happy to do that. Yeah. I would, I would have to know who to communicate that to, but I can, I can do that very easily. And this is why I did it. I wasn't just trying to, to drop names, but, um, but it's important for people to, to understand that there's like, and I, you know what, I came this close to having the last slide as a bibliography. And I said, nah, people are not going to want that. So, um, so I'm happy, happy to do that because there's a lot of good work that's occurring, um, and I'm happy to, to, to share some sources about that. Thank you for that question. So. And the comment was about the need for sources um, for people as they do this work in their communities to, uh, 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 to know what the state of the secondary literature is. So, uh, Yes? How would you compare St. Louis to Kansas City? In this yeah. So the question is, how would I compare St. Louis to Kansas City? Now, this is, this is one thing that I find really in, in, intriguing. Um, certainly, if we think about the truce line, Right? And in terms of how that's embodied both literally and metaphorically um, you know, this issue of, of, of just severe racial segregation, that bears uh, conversation. I think the work of, of J.C. Nichols, um, his development work, how he builds Johnson County or what have you, how that occurs and how that becomes a template that's taken elsewhere around the nation certainly suggests some continuities. Uh, But the thing that I find intriguing is that there's not been a lot of work done. There's been work done about racial segregation in Kansas City, but in terms of African-American social movements, there's not been a lot. Um, And every student that I come across, you know, graduate students who've been looking for a project at KU, I've said, you know, no one's doing Kansas City. Um, So you have organizations like Freedom Inc., which is a good example of this point where you have activist politics intersecting with electoral politics. So the whole point of of Freedom Incorporated, this organization, was to expand opportunities for African Americans in elected office. Um, Black people in Kansas City are part of um, these electoral politics in the same way that black people in St. Louis are. And in fact, part of how how Harry S. Truman, um, who is a contradictory figure, but part of how we understand his engagement with issues of black civil rights Um, is because he grows out of um, these war-level kind of machine Kansas City politics. And so he respected and understood that you had to deal with black people, right, because they were part of that. You had to will and deal, and you had to make deals. And there was a lot of corruption, right, so you have that, but there's also these areas where um, black people were able to expand um, opportunities for themselves. So that's my tentative response, that there are a lot of similarities that we can see, but for me, the real sort of, sort of interesting thing here is that um, there's, not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of literature on, on, on that. Um, and maybe others of you can speak to why you think that might be the case. The sources are there, um, the sources are there. Um, I'm waiting for some scholar to do a work on, on, you know, there's been some survey work done on black Missouri but the scale is, is so general, um, I think we need more work that's done regionally and at the state level. So, yeah. And I apologize that I can't answer your question more effectively than that. I've not studied Kansas City closely. <coughs> uh, yes? I'm no, 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 I I, you're up. I to follow up on that really quickly. Uh, I think that it's an interesting, you know, the, the framework that you present, right, at the, like, how St. Louis is at the nexus of the border. No. the nexus of the border west yeah, right? good, so point. yeah. Also, instance, different, um, good point yeah uh, good point it's different um issues that's right? right because the american west were so many and the black groups right that was uh, an opportunity uh, or a space of freedom right yeah um which wasn't there as well right we have just like myth that if you we went west there would be more liberties and that's not necessarily the case so that's right yeah Well, this is, a, I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I know that in St. Louis people, no offense, I didn't say it, I just heard it, you know, referred to Kansas City as a cow town, right? At, pejoratively, right, I give you that, but I'm saying, but, but in a way it speaks to what you're saying in terms of how people imagine where Kansas City is even within the state. Um, and, and I, I think that that, that that bears further, yeah, certainly further exploration, yeah. Is Kansas City the West? Right. You say no. Okay. But it's interesting. These, these regional, how are you? Yeah. When we moved here, we were told it was the north of the south, the south of the north, <laughs> right. the east of the west of the east. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. That's right. You're not going to have that conversation in Detroit. No. Right? I mean, you know what I mean? Or you're not going to have that conversation in Atlanta. You know what I mean? We're in the south, right? You're in Atlanta. Now, you know, right? Anyway. So um, I've become really fascinated about these questions. I mean, I think we have to fight and struggle more. I think sometimes we give up and say, ah, oh, you know, whatever. And I think that, that we need to sort of, even if we need to fight around sort of figuring out how we're understanding these places. If I ask you what defines the Midwest, there will probably would be a million responses to even that, right? So there's a lot of work that we have to do about where we, what, we're, what we're talking about when we're talking about place and space. So. Yes please. We've always I'm from Kansas City. So okay. We've always known and
2: felt that St. Louis was so much more progressive, that they had more of an influence, especially in African American community, they had much more influence, much more connection with the thought leaders in the South or thought leaders in the East yeah. on what should happen. And we always were just trying to find out as much as we could. Uh, when you spoke of freedom, absolutely. Freedom has been the, uh, the one organization where to, that has a, a, a good chance of getting people in office, African-Americans in office, and there hasn't been any others for years that can counter or, or be as successful as Freedom has. I mean, even to the point where well, they'll have a ballot and they'll give it to people, here's how you vote, just like that, and a mm. lot of people
1: still to this day don't take the time to really look at the candidates, they just wait for freedom to tell them. Uh, right. Who to vote for. Yeah. Uh, and that can be a good and bad. There's There can be problems, yeah, that can be problematic. So yeah. I've always wondered why
2: um, we're not as progressive. I've always <laughs> wondered why we uh, tend to just wait to see what's going to happen. You know, we've had uproars about police brutality and those type of things, but it never seems to really go anywhere as it does in St. Louis
1: and as it did in Ferguson. Yeah. We flew to Ferguson because we wanted to be involved, <coughs> but the same situations we have here, we just kind of just Midwest nice. So you, you know why I'm, I'm smiling just ear to ear. Part of how I got interested in this work is because I was I lived in the St. Louis area. I was politically involved, and everything that you every activist said, man, St. Louis is always behind Chicago and Detroit. You know what I mean? We're always, you know, why are we aren't we as progressive as those cities? So, so that's why I'm why I'm why I'm grinning. And part of my work, part of what 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 I wanted to do is to sort of talk about how St. Louis mattered because I heard from so many pessimistic folks that St. Louis is just, we're just several steps behind you know, everything else that's happening. So, so it's interesting to hear that Kansas City is looking at St. Louis and St. Louis is looking at what's happening um, in, in, in Chicago. But one very curious thing that people have said, um, particularly if you study the late 1960s, and this might sound perverse to some of you, but this was a thing, um, that part of, of kind of the catharsis of that period was to have had some kind of an urban rebellion. That didn't happen in St. Louis, right? Because you had these long-term, remember I was talking about this sort of these long-standing relationships of racial clientage? And so even in the late 1960s, they were still strong enough that people were able to manage the crisis so that the mayor of St. Louis, which is different than Mayor Daley in Chicago who ordered police to shoot to kill, right? After King was assassinated and people were in the streets, the mayor of St. Louis said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a march to honor King, and I'm going to lead it. I'm going to be at the front of it, right? The, fuse, the, whole, the whole thing. There were, there were disturbances in communities, right? But there was a relationship such that the press didn't cover it, right? Because you had all of these networks that were able to kind of suppress. So you had groups like Civic Progress, which is made up of all of the business CEOs that function really as kind of a shadow government to the city who were able to, to manage that. But you had a number of the actors who were saying, man, the folks in Kansas City, they actually on the ball because they've taken to the streets, right? So you know, um, and, you know that sort of thing, which makes me wonder how sort of racial managerial politics function in Kansas City. Um, because usually in cities where there were lines of communication, not that there was equality, but that there were lines of communication, you didn't see disturbances in that period. And you had a really major one in Kansas City, which raises a lot of questions of what really were these relationships among black, you know, black activists, electoral politicians, and the, you know, the top-ranking white elite decision-makers um, in the city. Yeah. Yes. Well did you have a, uh just yeah. just and then. something, but I am seeing some changes yeah. right now. Um with the, the young movement in yeah. the city, they are not, li- not not less necessarily listening to <laughs> the powers that be. Yeah. they're going around them. Mm-hmm. And so I expect some more yeah. activity. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I see a lot of similarities between Kansas City and St. Louis in the sixties. You mentioned leveraging se- segregation yeah. for better schools mm-hmm. and Yeah, uh, right. Uh, that's right. you had to uh, city coun uh, African American city council member. Mm-hmm. Uh you had a public accommodations ordinance, you had What year was that here? Fair, fair housing ordinance. What what years do you remember or do you know sixty four? See, right. Early sixties, right. right. Yeah.
2: Sure. You know, organization, they weren't a, you know, so I see a lot of similarities. Yeah. And I wonder if it has to do with the police relationship. Because I know that, you know, that really was a problem in, in, in Kansas City at that time. Yeah. Like, the relationship between with the police department
1: and St. Louis maybe have a, they
2: have a better relationship with the police no. department in the late 60s.
1: No, 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 And, no. I, and I know that was a you know, major cause for, yeah. you know, writing. It was, was always a spark, yeah, Detroit yeah, yeah. So. I, I really think that, I mean, these are good things. I accept your points that there I just don't know a lot about Kansas City in in detail, but it makes sense to me that 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 given sort of the state right that you have that framework, it allows for similar kinds of developments, maybe not in parallel, right Maybe one is a little bit behind or you know or or, or ahead. Um, I really think that that and this is my guess, and I would need to know more. Um, but in the late 1940s, You have an organization that comes into being called Civic Progress Inc. And again, it's it's an organization. It's a civic. It's an organization that's made up of all the leaders of the major um, employers, as well as um, uh, the major civic institutions and employers: Washington University, St. Louis University, um, the you know uh, uh, McDonald uh, Aircraft, which becomes McDonnell Douglas, um, what what have you, and. The city is 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 a major city but it's small enough that there are all of these overlapping relationships. And so there're just some issues that just get killed. And so if a person can pick up the phone and say, "Yeah, this thing is happening over on, you know, on uh, Van Aventer Avenue, that can't be in the newspaper." We're not we're not just not we're not going to give it any oxygen, right? And when people ask, "Nothing happened?" right? We get along. You know, we have lines of communication. And so I think that that there's something about the ability, there's a long history of that in St. Louis, the ability to manage, not resolve, but to manage race relations um, that is effective for a long period of time. And I think one of the things that we see coming out of Ferguson, what Ferguson represents is that that, 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 that was broken down, right? That we saw that 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 sort of thing failed. I was at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, the year before Ferguson, and they were talking about this, uh, you know, the anniversary of, of the city, and people were really just glorying in how um, good the relations, the race relationships were in St. Louis. That same kind of model, and and literally a couple of blocks away, the next year is where everything happened, right? In, in a sense, um, so um, I'm agreeing with everything that you, that, that you're saying. My, my, my argument would be that that's a good place at least to look. What were the civic relationships uh, among the decision makers in the black community? How was that tended? How was that frayed? Um, because a lot of the insurgency was able to emerge when those relationships either fell apart or got to a point where they, were, they weren't yielding anything that people could say. you know. So at the point where if you're saying, listen, everyone be cool, I'm going to go and get us this or playground or, you know, so on and so forth, um, and increasingly you're, not, you're coming back with nothing, then it's just like, okay, you, you move aside, right? We're going to do our thing. Um, and so that's a question at least to ask, I think. Yeah, thank you for that comment. Yeah, yeah. I, that, oh, I yeah. just to add yeah. Here, like, sorry. Uh, I think kind of, like, again, going back to this, like, the importance
0: of like, the geographic space, right? Yeah. The Mm-hmm. and the media and civic leaders had a large role in kind of
1: yeah. maintaining the lid, right, on, on um, these potential, like, civic unrest uh, yeah. that did happen in yeah. those two cities, but we never learned about that. Mm-hmm. And you make a good point there, too, because, I mean, I do think that what you remind us of is that we have to disrupt what we assume as the as, as South. Um, so Houston, you know, versus Miami, right? Um, there, there are different kinds of Souths, right? You know, um, that's happening there as well. Um, but I appreciate that point. Anyone else? I've just answered all your questions, huh? Okay. <laughs> oh, we'll go ahead and then. Yeah, yeah. Go, go right ahead. I'm from St. Joseph, Yeah.
0: Summer session, as opposed to the other schools that do the fall session. Yeah. So again, it's that dichotomy. Was it slaveholding
1: county, late in the Civil War under martial Law during the Civil War, and like I said, there was uh, people were segregated. There were theaters that would desegregate. quote-unquote, yeah. but African Americans were relegated to the balcony. Right. Sure. So yeah. it was desegregated, but the audiences were segregated. Well, that's segregation. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, oh, okay, so, so, so there was a time when you couldn't even go into the theater. You All right, okay, I was like, well, what do you, okay. You couldn't go into until after the passage of the I see, the okay. But yet you have this desegregation yeah. of the school right. immediately, yeah. that dichotomy. Which incidentally happened in schools, too, right, you know, tracking and what have you, so that's a whole other conversation with, um, I saw your hand, yeah, please. And I'm recognizing that I'm I'm being naughty here. I'm, I should have been repeating more things, and so they should have been here. You know, that's all I have to say. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So a lot of us are public historians. Yes. You know, we're not academics. Yeah. You know, and we appreciate the academic spending because we still do you guys all the time. But um, you know, like for someone like me, I grew up in Booneville, Missouri. Yeah. Eighties, um, nineties, even today, still very segregated. Yeah. Right. had resonance in the larger civil rights movement it did. until fifteen years after I had left right. and learned about it. So how do we as public historians looking at our region uh, of well you know go back
0: to that? I knew who Rose Parks book but I didn't
2: know Owen Whitfield right. leader of the Southern yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Important. Right. This is, a, this is a conversation that we need to be having about our community. Yeah. So the question is how do we, how do people who do public history go back to their communities um, to, to make sure that audiences are aware that, that this history matters? I have a number of, of, of responses to, to what you said. I mean, you know, first and foremost, um, actually, those of us who are, I'll use the term that you use, who are academics, actually rely on the work of, of public historians. That's how we get a lot of our stuff done, right? But, but sort of the things that you do. So it, it's, 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 a back and, it's a back and forth. And, and, you know, and I sort of gave you a, a framework because I wanted to approach this from the standpoint of the immense respect that, that you deserve, that I could have told you, a, you know, a story, but what I'm really interested in was sort of saying, you, know, you all are doing the work on the ground and this is maybe a different way to think about how you're organizing what you're coming across. And the the shortest answer to my question, how do we go back and do it, I think is to begin with the idea and and be quick to disrupt the idea that when people say the Civil Rights Movement, you need to quickly say, um, even if you're from Mississippi or Alabama, that any place where you had a substantive black population, there was a movement that occurred in some form or other. And so the task of, of people who are doing public his, his, history is to look for those narratives because they're there to re, and recover them. And that the biggest thing that people can do is to find ways to, to disrupt the idea that the Civil Rights Movement was just a series of national marches to DC, but that there were things that occurred in St. Joseph. Because I guarantee you, even in uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, some group of black folks and white allies fought somewhere, right, at some time, even to be able to come into that theater and ultimately to be able to sit where they, where they wanted. And it wasn't just Martin Luther King Jr., it wasn't just you know, ministers, but it was people who um, can be very difficult to find, which is why our public historians are so important to do that, that kind of excavation to people who, um, there may be blips, right, or in some cases are still living in those communities. And people have presumed that they're not important enough to talk to and to get their narratives and their stories about what what occurred, who oftentimes don't even have a sense of their own uh, what they've done historically that it that it that it matters. Maybe that's not a is, is not a good question, but I think the, the point is just to really sort of you know to to really find ways to broaden the conversation about where it was, and sometimes it was it might have been about things that we don't necessarily think about um, as belonging to the to the civil rights movement. Um, as well, but to really kind of open up those conversations to ask these old questions new, who, what, when, where, um, and, and how, um, even. Um, I hope that's, that's enough of a response, or maybe I'm, I missed a, the, the question and you can, you know, yeah, all right, yeah, please. I'm from the Arts Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. Okay.
0: the Civil Rights Movement that have gotten boiled down to yeah. those Parts of Martin King, yeah. and I think as, I would, I would encourage all of us, as we do go back and explore these histories in our communities, and I absolutely agree with you, uh, we've got to figure out a way to engage our communities about the community story right related to a larger context of the movement, um, which is why I wanted to come to this session, because we get a lot of people coming to Montgomery saying, we came here to learn about the Civil Rights Movement. Exactly. Yeah. That maybe you didn't have the same kinds of issues that we had in the Deep South, right. but there were there, this, this systemic racism did not um, confine itself to Mississippi, Alabama, okay. Georgia whatever. Right. Uh, and so I think it's so important for us to to, to broaden the narrative about civil rights because we have boiled it down to Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, 54.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Um, So one of the things that your comment just triggered for me, um, and this maybe is something that you you might want to sort of keep to sort of throw at folks if they say we came to learn about the Civil Rights Movement, Um, uh, and and, and to be fair to those individuals who may be saying that, if we think about the story that we're given, if we think about the images, the, the standard narrative tells us that it was all about the South. You know what I mean? I mean so so there, there's a way in which we're socialized, um, and you know, th- that that's the kind of the narrative that we've, we've, be, we've, been, we've been given. So there's a lot of work that has to happen in other ways in disrupting that. But one thing you, you should you know, feel free to mention to people is that when we talk about um, the struggle to, for open and fair housing, the bloodiest battles around that occurred in the North, not in the South. Because in the South, there was a long history of black and white people living in close proximity. Right? So it wasn't, right to, to sort of go to what some of the, the, you know, the elders would say, it wasn't about how close you were. It was about how big you try to get, as opposed to in the North, in the Chicago, get as big as you want, don't get close. Right? So you even have King who comes to Chicago, and he's like, I've never seen. <laughs> anything like this <laughs> in my career. So, so housing, the bloodiest battles, Milwaukee, Chicago, um, New York, um, what, uh, 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 Boston, um, I mean, the ugliest battles around housing occur in the north. Um, because, um, if you will, apartheid in housing markets was far more entrenched there than it was in the south very different kind of racial and political traditions mm-hmm. yeah so that's one thing to say i think um yeah that's why you need that reeling list and i'm going to send you right so that you could have them um, you know people have to do their work too right um i was just down in, in montgomery and and but I, w- I will say that um you know there is a way in which and i was just there to visit i've not lived in montgomery but there is a way in which I, I think that at least in, in that case people are reckoning with that past in ways that folks are not as comfortable doing um, in communities outside of the South. I will say that. So the Legacy Museum, um, the National Maj- uh, Memorial for What Peace and Justice, um, really um, important. Um, I think I think institutions. So and I know that I'm not you know I know you welcome people to come and, and, and see that. Um, but what's really important about that memorial is that when you look at all of the, you know, the, 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 um, the, 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 the evidence of people being lynched, it's not just Georgia and Mississippi, I mean, there's Kansas, I mean, these things are happening all over the place. And I think that the museum does a good job of sort of helping to direct people to um, exactly what you said, figure out what was happening in your community and what needs to be done to come to terms with the horrors that happened there, um, I think, yeah. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, let me sort of ask this, is there anyone who's not spoken who has a comment or a question? And if not, then we'll, we're gonna give you the last one. Yeah, go ahead. So well, I popped in right. and I totally agree
2: with what she just said. I work for the Detroit Historical Society. slavery Detroit.
1: Sure. It was all about overhousing mm-hmm. um, and racial tension between whites and blacks. So this is not a story that just took place in the South. It right. is across the country. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uprising. uprising,
2: sure. These are really important conversations to have, and we have had many of them, hundreds of them, and they all are really significant because people have an opportunity to voice their, their you know, their fears, their concerns, yeah. you know, how they were raised, yeah. you know, people on
1: opposite ends of the spectrum, and it's an opportunity for us to meet each other yeah. in the middle. So. Yeah. Detroit1967.org. Yeah. So let me make a comment, and you're going to get the last last word. I'm going to give that to you, but to, to, to sort of say, um, and I just want to, I, and I and I am sincere about this. Like the work that you all are doing in terms of changing the conversations, I mean, is 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 far more immediate and significant than the work of, you know, what you call academic um, academic scholars, because the interface is more immediate and direct. And to the extent that you all are able to be successful in that, you actually make our jobs easier um, in, in, in that sense. So I'm just you know, part of one of the reasons why I jumped at the opportunity to do this is like, hey, I definitely want to speak to these folks because they're, in a sense, on the front lines in terms of collecting and publicizing um, this history. You get the last word. Yeah, that's OK. It's fine. I appreciate your enthusiasm. Sorry. Yeah, but I, I'm, a, I'm also an academic yeah. that is running a
0: public history program. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. public school curriculums, right? So I think that it's an important um, discussion to have that as public historians and as academics that we need to be working closely with educators in the K-12
1: right. um, education system because that's what
0: every single person living in this country who's attending a school is going to be learning, that's right? right? rights or, or the history of, of race relations in this country, then it's going to be really difficult for our audiences, whether they're students or people visiting the museums, to
1: really grasp the concepts yeah. that we're discussing. Amen to that. So. No, seriously. Listen, uh, thank you all for coming for staying and for your questions and, uh, and your, your comments. Uh, have a great conference. Thanks again. Yeah.